church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to the book of Colossians as we continue along in our series, Walking Through This Book. As Ben said earlier during our welcome, uh, we are fond of a saying that's not original to us or, or new to you, but that saying is simply circles more than rows. And one of the reasons we say that is because of what Paul spells out here in this letter in Colossians 2. That phrase that we use to communicate one of our core values, our culture, who we are, why we do what we do, it's rooted in this idea that we need one another to grow in our faith, that we need one another to understand Christ and the mystery of Christ. And so Paul elaborates in that for us today. And so I want to invite you to follow along with me as I just read the first three verses in Colossians chapter 2, where God's word says this, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom all are hidden, all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. Pray with me. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and the teaching of your word. Father, would you change us to look more like your son Jesus in these next few moments. For we pray these things in his name and God's people said, amen. amen. Years ago, um, as a fan and a student of church history, I was reading about the ministry of the man that many of you know and perhaps understand in this room by the name of George Whitfield. And he was a famous evangelist. He had a zeal for the gospel. He was a prolific communicator and rhetorician. And, and he saw personally within his own life thousands upon thousands of those that got saved underneath his ministry. And his ministry spanned not just in the United States, but it was in Europe and, and really all over the world. And historians tell a story about one day George Whitfield was in Edinburgh, Scotland. And there he was drawing a crowd as he usually did. And one man was going to the place where George Whitfield happened to be preaching that evening. And he ran across and bumped into one of Scotland's most famous secular humanist philosophers, a man by the name of David Hume. David did not believe in the gospel. He did not even believe in God for that matter. Charles Darwin would go on later to describe some of David Hume's work as having the, the foundational impact for his own theory of evolution. And so this man bumps into David Hume on the way to hear the prolific speaker and preacher, George Whitfield. Surprised to see him, he says to Hume in that moment, I, I thought you did not believe in the gospel to which Hume famously replied, I don't, but that man does. Now, Hume's response in this moment, I think is interesting because what Hume could see in Whitfield is he saw a, a passion and he saw a zeal. He saw a man that genuinely believed what he was saying he was proclaiming. And, and Hume believed that, that Whitfield rightly understood and, and rightly lived in a way that modeled the words that he preached from and the words that he said. I think Whitfield's behavior in that moment is instructive for us in this moment. Are we to be a people that rightly say one thing and do we live in such a way that the world would look at us and they go, they genuinely believe what they say they believe and they can see it on us and, and they can taste it and they can observe it in, in all actualities before us. 
Well, the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians, he rightly believed the things that he said. He rightly believed in in the authority and in the ministry of the local church. A group of people to whom he had never met before and, and he didn't know them by name, yet he saw them come to faith in Christ through one of his disciples. And so Paul writes with a great brotherly affection towards the the church in Colossae. And you hear it in his tone and you see it in his words. And and what Paul does in this moment is he sets an example for the church and how we are to think about one another. And more importantly, how we are to think about Christ. He expresses this concern to his brothers and sisters. And I want you to notice, beginning in verse 1, where he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. It's an interesting use of phrase and and words there. As Paul sits in that cold jail cell, never having actually ever met the people that he writes and pins the letter to, yet in this moment he says, I want you to know how great of a struggle I have for you, how I labor for you and I contend for you and how I pray for you. In the Greek, that word struggle there is the word, the noun, agon, A-G-O-N. It's where we get the word agony to to strive and to toil. It's what the Greeks would would use to describe when they would go to their Olympic events and they would run and they would wrestle and they would do all the things that Greeks would do in that moment. It it, it connotates this idea of of care and concern. And, And I work day and night. I struggle and I toil for your sakes. He wrestled in prayer for the church which is where the real fight was for Paul. Paul understood that his affection and his desire for for this local body to whom he had never met, it wasn't just a a nine to five job where he shuts off at five and he he goes home. He he agonized for it. He contended for that group of people 24 hours a day. He understood even though they were a people to whom he had never met, yet he felt a special connection with, with each of them. He loved the local church. We have another saying around here that we use to communicate our core values, and it's simply this. We believe that people are our mission. That the best place for us to grow spiritually is in the context of a a circle gathered around other like-minded believers asking the right questions and contending for the faith and, and asking those questions in the context of a community. And we believe here that people, even difficult people, are not the the obstacle for us to, to run over, but rather they are the mission. They are the ones to whom we we serve and they are the ones to whom we contend. They are the ones to which we agonize for them and on their behalf. They are the ones that we come alongside and, and we want another, if you will, for the purpose of what Paul goes on later to say in verse two. The reason why I struggle The reason why I toil, the reason why I contend is so that their hearts may be encouraged. So that the church's hearts would be knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of all the understanding and all the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. To say it another way, what... Paul means in this moment of verse 2, the depth of understanding is facilitated when believers' hearts are bound together in love. 
In other words, it's impossible, as Paul speaks about, for you to fully understand the riches and and the fullness and the mystery of Christ apart from contending for those things in the context of a community. In the context of coming alongside one another in brotherly love and affection and learning in the context next to other believers and, and contending for the faith in that moment so that I struggle so that their hearts would be encouraged. That their hearts would be knit together with the same vision and the same mission and the same values. That we would leave this place on a Sunday morning uh, vying for the same people, those that are far from God. That we would see them come to know the mystery and the fullness of Jesus. That he saves and that he is still saving today. That he is still reconciling today, that he is still redeeming today, that, that he is a God that is just as powerful today in this day and age with all the darkness that is before us. Yet he is still the same almighty, all powerful God that desires to see those that don't know him reconciled to himself. And he is still doing and he is still accomplishing that work together. You see, when we are loved by other believers, we experience Christ through them, do we not? When we are in fellowship with one another, when our hearts are being knit together in the context of our small groups, in the context of of knowing others and and letting others know us, our our hearts become knit together and, and we begin to see Jesus in one another. When we encourage one another and show mercy to one another, when we demonstrate compassion and kindness and the fruit of the Spirit to one another, we we end up seeing Jesus in each other. We become the the hands and we become the feet of Jesus in that moment. As God begins to to knit our hearts together and he he binds us together through our commitment and understanding the, the things that we believe about his word, but then coming alongside one another and to encourage one another and to hold one another accountable. The depth of our understanding of the mysteries of Jesus is, is distinctly related to the context of the community in which we discover it. We can know Jesus without being in community, but yet what Paul seems to say here in this moment is that the depth of our understanding is directly related to to our understanding of, of how the church works together and comes alongside one another to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Our pursuit of God Our pursuit of him was never intended to be lived in isolation from other people. There is no such thing, according to the Bible, as a a lone ranger Christian. There is no such thing, according to to God's word, as a person that can just do it by themselves and and they can contend for it by themselves and understand it by themselves. There, There is no such thing that does not exist because the idea of the local church being God's plan A, being his mission in the context of people coming together, this is what God intended all along is that we would grow in our faith alongside other people. And that as we do that, we would then begin to rightly understand who who Jesus is. 
That we rightly begin to understand that, that he is who he has set himself to be, this mystery, the knowledge of God, which is in Christ. What you believe about Jesus today is everything. If you believe in this moment that Jesus is the eternal God, that he is without any beginning and, and he is without any end, that he is always continuing, eternal. If you believe that Jesus is the creator of everything, if you believe, as one theologian said, that every cosmic speck across trillions of light years of trackless space belong to him, that he is preeminent in all things, that he is the creator of, of the colors and the textures and the paint and, and the tapestries that we watch and that we observe. He is the sustainer of all creation. He is the force that holds all the atoms together. He is the being that sustains your breath in this very moment. He is the being that sustains your breath an hour from now and tomorrow and 24 hours and weeks. He is the one that is the mystery, the incarnate one who is reconciled us to all things and who right now in this moment is redeeming humanity to himself. He is Jesus. And he is worthy of our praise and he is worthy of our affections. He is the one who loves you intimately and deeply. He is the one that knows you by name. He is the one that, that puts the lilies in the field. He is the one that knows every hair on your head. He knows you by name. This is the Jesus, the knowledge of God's mystery, which has been revealed in Christ. And what you believe about Christ now makes all the difference in the world now and in the one to come. But I find it interesting that as Paul talks about this mystery that has been revealed in Christ, how does this knowledge of Christ come? Well, he, he says it explicitly. It comes primarily through the revealed word that he has given, but it comes by our hearts being knit together in love. The depth of our understanding of who Jesus is, it is bound and it is tied to our affection for one another, our commitment to one another and coming alongside one another and being knit together in this phileo brotherly love that God gives. That this revelation that he gives us in his word cannot be properly known apart from this cultivating these relationships with one another that they are intimately connected, that, that we can't just have this intellectual assent and, and comprehension of the mystery of God. No, what Paul says is that comprehension of that mystery, it is tied to the believers coming alongside one another in community and walking with one another and understanding with one another. And it comes when God's people Understand and believe that there is this relationship that exists there between our creator and the thing and the person that he creates. Being knit together in love in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But the revelation of God cannot be properly known or understood apart from the cultivation of community apart from the cultivation of the relationships that exist within the context of the local church. 
You see, knowing God is a personal thing. It's, 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 it's more than knowing about him. It's based on relationship and communion with him. It's about walking with him and, and listening to him and, and hearing from him according to his word and, and what he has revealed. I think Colossians 2.2 is one of the most compelling arguments in the scripture for the local church. In a day and age in which Zennials and Millennials and Gen Z and Gen X and Gen Y make statements such as, I, I love Jesus, but I really just don't care and love the church. And we see this messaging over and over and over again, especially with our, with our younger folks. I love this Jesus that you, you talk about, but I, but I really don't like the, the church that gathers together for some reason and, and for whatever way. I love Jesus, but I, but I don't love the church. What we see here in Colossians 2 is that our understanding of who Jesus is, that it is intimately and it is intricately interlaced within the context of the church. And that is, it is impossible for us to love Jesus and to not love the bride that he is married to. To not love the bride that, that he, he died for, the, the bride that he shed his blood for. We, we can't just love him and, and, and hate the person and the, and the people that he is married to. You see, the local church is, is how God intends to accomplish his mission in the world. It is plan A. It is not a parachurch. It is not a, a ministry that is divorced from the context of the local church. It's not a, a well-intending meaning or philosophy in the life of an individual. No, what God says is, I will save and redeem my people. I will reconcile them to, to myself through my son Jesus as my church goes out and is the church. That is, they are the, the hands and the feet of, of what I've called them to do, the local church. It is everything. It is the way God intends to accomplish the mission in the world. Secondly, the local church matters to us because it matters to God. That God deeply cares about the health and, and he deeply cares about the welfare of his church. He cares about your welfare individually, but he, but he cares about us from a health standpoint as a church overall, the local church. It matters to us because it matters to God. And so we contend for it and we fight for it and, and we speak about it and, and we pursue health as we pursue God in all things. The local church is not just mattering to us because it matters to God, but the local church is where we as a people, we grow. And it's where we learn to, to humble ourselves. It's where we learn to receive instruction and, and teaching, where we receive encouragement and admonition, where, where we receive even at times rebuke. And we listen and, and we respond and, and we approach our God and we approach his church that, that he loves, that he died for, that he shed his blood for. It's where we grow. It's where we humble ourselves. Knowledge of God in willful isolation distorts our view of God and it hinders our relationship with him. Amen. When we seek growth outside of the context primarily and, and mainly and supremely outside of the context of, of the body that God has called us to, there, there are no lone rangers in Christendom. There is no such thing as a person that can do it by themselves, that can do it on their own. Now, why was Paul saying these things, being knit together in love in whom are hidden all the treasures and wisdom of knowledge? 
He tells us in verse 4. He says, I, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The reason why Paul contends in this moment for the local church, that our hearts would be knit together and bound together as we pursue and study and as we seek to learn the, the mysteries of Jesus, is he says all of these things so that no one would delude you or delude me with plausible arguments that would contend away from the faith and away from the gospel of Jesus. But the local church is how God sort of provides the checks and balances, if you will, so that if one day you begin to speak something about Christ that, that is not in a way that, that has been revealed in his word, and, and you maybe say that unintentionally, you're there in the context of community for someone to, to ask the question, well, well, that's one way to, to look at that, pastorally speaking, but, but this is what the Bible actually says about this issue or, or that particular issue. Or this is how we learn that, that not every scenario and not every situation is, is all black or all white. There are so many areas in our life that gray exists. And what we seek to do in those moments is to apply the wisdom of the scripture in that moment. The scripture is sufficient for those things, but, but where it does not directly speak to, we, we then apply those principles and we apply those teachings and we, we ask our neighbor and our friend and the person in our small group, hey, I was thinking about this scenario and was thinking to apply the word of God in, in this way. Does, does that measure up, do you think? Is it consistent with what the word of God says? And so Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent, Sitting in this cold, dark jail cell, yet I am with you in spirit, and I rejoice to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. That you are walking faithfully with Jesus. That you are firm and, and resolute in, in what you believe and what you say. Verse 6, he goes on and he says, therefore, because of all these things, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. I find it interesting that in this moment of verse six, he says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, you have received him as Lord. It's, it's not just accepting of, of his teaching. It's not just even accepting him as a, as a person. We certainly receive the teaching and, and we receive the tradition that is handed down. We receive his fullness. He, he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. We received him as God. We receive him as a historical person that was actually living and, and breathing, rooted in humanity through the incarnation. But we don't just receive him as a person. We receive him as Lord. The famous evangelist Billy Graham once said, no man can truly be converted to Christ who has not bent his will to Christ. He can give intellectual assent to the claims of Christ, but, but may have had emotional experiences. However, he is not truly converted until he has surrendered his will explicitly to Christ as Lord and Savior. In the book of Acts, you'll know that the word Savior is only mentioned twice. In Acts 5.31 and in Acts 13.23, yet the title Lord is mentioned in the book of Acts alone over 92 different times. 
The phrase Lord Jesus is mentioned 13 times and the phrase the Lord Jesus Christ is said over six different times. The Lordship of Jesus, believing that he saved us from our sins and he redeemed us, yet in that process, when we call upon his name, we, we bend our will to his. And we trust him as, as Lord and we, and we trust him as Savior. Therefore, as you have received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Walk in him. What Paul means in that moment is hour by hour, minute by minute, trusting Jesus, the Lord and Savior of, of all humanity, trusting in him to meet all of your needs and for him, Jesus, to be your greatest treasure. Leaning into him, resting upon him, pouring our hearts out to him and believing in him. The slain savior of the world who reconciles us to the father, the crucified Christ, walk in him. Not in the empty philosophies of the day or the deceit before us, but to have our eyes fixed firmly upon Jesus, the author and, and the perfecter of our faith, the crucified Christ, walk in him. You know, I believe with all my heart that the more lifeless your gospel is, the snazzier you have to be. That preachers and teachers will create theatrics and, and gimmicks and, and those things will never take the place of one glimpse of what it can do when we fix our eyes upon a crucified Jesus. Years ago, I served in a church in the South Dallas area. And there was a new church plant that was in, uh, starting up just down the road from us. And we, we prayed for blessings and riches and all of those things. And, and one of the things that that church got off to a tremendous start. And their pastor was willing to do whatever it took to bring the crowd in. And he would do all kinds of, of different things that we would hear about on social media. He, he one, one Sunday, he, he preached from the, from the roof of the, of the sanctuary, dangling from a rope before his people. He would give away tickets to football games and basketball games to, to bring their friends. And, and this lasted for, for about a year. And one of my elders, he said, just remember this young little preacher. I was 29 years old. He said, whatever you've got to do to get them there is what you've got to do to, to keep them there. Yeah. And before long, that, that church began to, to lose people. They began to walk away. And they got tired, I, I think, because he couldn't keep up all the gimmicks and all the tricks. Because his mission and his, and his vision and his value was, was on entertainment in those moments. And it wasn't on a crucified, risen Savior. To walk in him means that we make Christ our home. We, we want to feel him and, and see him and know him. We saturate ourselves in the word of God. We reflect on him and, and who he is and his character and his, and his faithfulness in our life. He built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. And then notice how he ends in verse 7. You do all these things abounding in thanksgiving. What this breeds in the life of the believer in the heart as our hearts are knit together is that it makes us in that moment when rightly understood and doing it the way that God intends, it makes us a, a people that are full of thanksgiving. It makes us a people that are full of gratitude. 
and thankfulness for, for God being who he, who he says he was and being tried and true all of these years and, and giving us a testimony of his thankfulness. Rooted up and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, making him our home. I remember three years ago, about three years ago, when God called us here to Travis, we rented a house just down the road from here and we began to look for our home. We didn't know where we wanted to, to be. And so we began to look around and one day Haley called and said, I'm going to go look at a house. I've got the kids with me. Can you come? And I said, well, I can't come, but, uh, but you go and then just send me a video. And if you like the house and, and it's in our budget, uh, let's get it. And so she goes and she's there with the realtor walking around and she's showing me a video. And I said, I just got three quick questions. Is there any foundation issue? She said, no. How old's the roof? Uh, it's like 10 years old. It's good. What do the ACs look like? When were those replaced? And so she gives me all those facts. I said, do you like the house? She goes, yeah, but it needs a lot of work. And I said, well, let's make an offer and let's get it. Never actually haven't been there. Well, then I, I go a couple of days later to go see the house and I'm thinking to myself, we've made a terrible mistake. This house has a lot of work that we've got to do. And we began this process for, for three or four months of making that home to, to make it feel like it was our, our refuge. It was our, our place that, that we would retreat to and, and a place to where we would be. And so we had to do all of this work to update it and to fix certain things. But we worked and we labored and, and we toiled in the midst of that to, to get it to where it is and, and to where we wanted it to be. And it was hard and it was time consuming at times. And yet the end result is it's a place where we go and it's our, our refuge. It's the place where we, we are as a, as a family, where we let our guards down and, and we can be ourselves, if you will, and we can relax and, and just be with, with our family in that moment. You see, when, when Paul says to walk in him, what he's saying is you, you struggle and you toil and you allow him to not just be the, the savior who redeemed you of your sins, but you allow him to be the Lord and the master and you make your heart a home for him. Because he has brought you into his bigger overarching story. And he has said your, your dreams and ambitions of your home are, are, are far inferior to the dreams and ambitions that I have for you when you walk according to my ways. And so the Bible says that anyone that would call upon the name of the Lord would receive that reward. That would receive that, that, that gift of, of salvation that would apply that, that act of mercy and grace that, that God gives through Jesus. That if we believe that Jesus was who he says he was and who he claimed to be, and we trust that, that it is through him and him alone that we receive forgiveness of our sins, the Bible says that we too then will and shall be saved. We will be reconciled to the Father. We will be redeemed and, and our sins are removed away from us as far as the East is from the West and, and that God accepts us not because of who we are, but because of what his son Jesus did. This morning, if you have not called upon his name, can I implore you to do so? That in the stillness of your seat in this sanctuary in that pew, you just cry out, would you just simply just say, oh God, would you save me from my sins? Would you redeem me? And let his spirit work in your heart. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your good word. 
We thank you for your faithful word. And so, Lord God, I ask that in this moment as we respond, we are, you're, what you ask of us is that we respond. Anytime your word is opened, you demand a response from your people. And so, Father, whatever our response is this morning as your people, we, we pray that it would be done in a spirit of obedience and faithfulness and trust. Being knit together in this brotherly phileo love that you talk about in your word that we would abound in, in thanksgiving as you reveal the mysteries of Christ in our hearts. So Father, would you help us in these few moments that we have as we respond, for we pray these things in Christ's name and God's people said, amen.